This podcast is dedicated to the Dakota. We offer honor and recognition to the Dakota on whose land our community building stands. Thank you. Welcome to the Students' Co-op Memory Journal. It's episode 7. It's still December, and we're still talking with Ted and Carolinda about the turn of the 70s decade into the 80s decade. Is that how you say that? Today we'll try to answer the question, is the co-op good for our mental health? So I heard that there was a suicide that took place in the yeah. laundry room. Yeah. Oh yeah, Kurt. Kurt was bipolar, and not a lot was known about bipolar, I think, back then. And he would go on days where he you know. wouldn't sleep, and he would be you know, buying things and spending money on things he didn't have, you know, and then he would be just massively depressed. I mean, it's that age group, right? I yeah. mean, a lot of people have mental health issues or substance abuse issues. But he had been discharged from the military for these yeah. mental health problems and decided to use, I think, his GI money to go to college. He actually killed himself, though, after we left. After we left. Yeah. Yeah. So we weren't a part of that incident where his body was found and such but um okay, but we but knew him quite well knew him can you tell us a little yeah, bit about him what i well, no, he was a really nice man he used to play poker with us which was fun we, we loved poker night with him and he just had these extremes he didn't call it bipolar he told me he said i'm a manic depressive that's what he he had that label he he went on some pretty crazy Binges. spins yeah, spins. <laughs> yeah. And, then, and then he would be really really sad and depressed and in his room and I think now about all the mental health issues that were happening that were undiagnosed. I mean, there was eating disorders, there was substance abuse, there was this kind of bipolar. Yeah, I mean, and there were certain people that would get shut up in their rooms for maybe a day or two. And we're just like trying to do a wellness check. Like, are you alive? Are you okay? Yeah. Myself anyway, feeling very ill-equipped to handle that level of now I realize mental illness. I didn't really know what it was. I just knew that they were really sad and didn't mm. want to be with anybody. Yeah. I think about that often. We often say our culture is stagnant in America, that it just rehashes over nostalgic things. But I think a lot of things have changed in the realm of uh, caring for each other and, and noticing that someone might need help or just need a shoulder to cry on or something as opposed to like you were saying this sort of well you're kind of thrown into the machine and good luck you and it might chew you up and you might not survive at the university of minnesota we had counseling services that you, and i do remember like encouraging people and seeing people go to get some help there but it was kind of like when they were very very really in a bad place it just happens with young people that they go through those kind of tragedies even our son at his co-op experienced the death. Um, he found someone who had overdosed in one of the rooms and he had to call the police and the ambulance. And it was a friend of his that he'd known for a while. And it was an opioid death. It, it was a hard thing for a young college kid to go through, you know, it, it's, it's a tough thing. I, I don't know whoever found Kurt, but I imagine that it was fairly traumatic. Yeah, that's really sad. He really, he talked about it for quite a while. I'm not saying the co-op is free of these things, but you notice around in the frats, there's a lot more sexual assault and uh, <laughs> drunken behavior oh, yeah. and things like that. And I, it just made me realize that the co-op 
even though it had its own issues that were very much tied to its time, it seemed like it was just trying to do better. And there might even have been a feeling that, yeah, we want to do better because we see so much pain in the quote unquote normal society. We're that altruistic. (laughs) Well, I would say as a woman living in the co-op, I always felt safe. I felt like there was a group, and again, it was like two to one, but there was a group of men there who were going to make sure that the Mm. kinds of things that happened to women at fraternities didn't happen in the co-op. Now, I'm not saying nothing ever happened, and we had mentioned already the sexual harassment that happened. With I felt like if anything, if anybody had tried anything with me, even the fraternity that that my co-op, the co-opers would have had my back and would have mm-hmm. made sure that that I was taken care of. Likewise, I, I feel like we would just comment on how they were so willing to just get so rip-roaring drunk on Friday and Saturday without any kind of responsibility in their heads. Whereas I felt like the co-op was more permissive. People were doing things kind of throughout the week, but there was a sense of responsibility for oneself and towards the others within the house. One of the things that frustrated me to no end when I lived there and had, as you'll recall, the east side of the building is almost right next to a fraternity. And um, the delts. You know, I'd have an exam the next day and they would be just blaring music on a, you know, on a Wednesday night. We that didn't was that. still an ongoing problem. We, we yeah, the way we, we tried to that. solve this was go over there and request that they turn it down. And we had gotten to a, a relationship with them where they would more or less agree and say, okay, we'll, we'll turn it down for a bit. And it might come back up again. We might have to go ask them again. But for the most part, in the end, uh, in the mid-2010s, we were able to say, please keep it down. When we finally worked up the nerve to ask them again, Right. Yeah. Well, we did. We had a fairly adversarial relationship with them. The Delts, especially. Yeah. They yeah. hated our guts. Yeah. <laughs> we used to see them do the most ridiculous things. Then when our room was in, off the porch on the first floor there, we'd be sitting there. It was all dark and they didn't see us. A bunch of them came out of the Delt house, went over to the dumpsters back there dumped them over, kicked the garbage around, and they were yelling at the fraternity behind us saying, come out here and fight. They were mad at them for some reason. But nobody in the other fraternity responded at all. They didn't say a thing. So they kind of milled around for a little bit. Then they picked up the dumpster, put the stuff back in, and went back in their house. None of that made any sense to me. (laughs) I just couldn't figure out why they would do that. (laughs) (laughs) The, the Delts, there there are many stories from them. I mean, they were throwing a party one night, and we were, at that point, living on the second floor on the front. And I kept hearing this glass breaking. So I went downstairs, and I looked on our porch, and it was covered in broken bottles. And I kind of look over, and there was nobody on their porch. All of a sudden, somebody sticks a hand out the second floor and tosses an empty beer bottle over at our porch. So every time they were finishing a beer, they would stick their arm out the window and just throw it at our porch. They wouldn't even look to see if somebody was on the porch. They didn't care. Oh, that's callous. By the time we got out there, you know, the whole thing was covered in glass and we were pretty sick of it. The party was loud enough. And so somebody who shall remain nameless went over there with like a pole from a weightlifting set and they had two giant spotlights lighting up the front of their house. 
and they took the pole and went smash both lights out. Whoa. And and yeah. yelled, party's over, guys. Oh, went, damn. And, and so <laughs> went, went back home. They came over pounding on the door. We went out on the front like, what are you talking about? Well, some guy in a red shirt came over and did it. Like, we, had, we just had no idea what they were talking about. Meanwhile, they're walking around on our porch. It's all covered in glass. I'm sure several of them cut their feet to pieces. <laughs> it's glass. <laughs> and the next day, I mean, we just cleaned up the glass and ignored them. I think kind of getting to, to the conversation earlier mm-hmm. where you talked about, Maxime, about, you know, having a relationship, a, a, a fairly respectable relationship or respectful relationship with them. It just wasn't there. It was um, just like, oil and water. I remember just thinking a lot of times, why are they even doing the things they're doing? I don't mm-hmm. even understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. Now, the ones on the other side, whose name I don't remember. the frat, On the corner? Yeah. The only time I've ever been in a physical fight in my life was with them. We were coming back from a movie, Ted and I and two other co-opers, and their name calling and all this stuff. And I just kept going, you know, side, side door. door. Yeah, yeah. And, um, they were still yelling at us and I'm doing the combination lock to get in. And they threw a bottle, a full, like a liquor bottle oh. came flying at my, past my head and hit right next to the door on the wall there. Oh my gosh. And I just spun around on my heels. And before I even knew what was going on, the well, four of us, me and these three men that I was with were over there. All right. You were just about to say you beat the out of them. <laughs> was it something I said? <laughs> We're getting too graphic. So, yeah, I've never been in a fight in my life. And a friend of mine was holding the fellow down that threw the bottle. Mm. And I kicked him in, in the legs and not hard. So yeah. <laughs> you know, she, she very hard. I'm kind of a passive person. <laughs> but the cops came and one of the fellows, I know it was one that was fighting with you or with Steve, but one of them um, jumped on the, jumped cops, on the back. cops back. Holy I mean, pockets. This, this young man was removed from the cop and put in the back of the car. In the back of the car. But, you know, he was out right away. I mean, the level of privilege was uh, of the fraternities was just incredible. And I think that couldn't find common ground because even though, you know, we might have all been similar in terms of our race, we were not similar in terms of our level of um, socioeconomic status or in terms of our level of just the way that we viewed the world. I mean, we... We did not think that we had the level of... It was war. It was war. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Were you there when they apparently destroyed the co-op's roof by throwing bricks and such? I I don't think so. I don't recall that. No, I don't. I know we had a new roof put on, and I don't think it ever got destroyed while we lived there. But we, we luckily have better relationship with the frats now and we've even had some fraternity members join and you know we've attended some gatherings like that yeah it it never ceased to amaze me how much they got away with yeah and 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 not even and then like i said not even understanding why they would want to do that you know why why would you want to for example jump on a cop's back why would you want to do that or why would you want to sexually assault people and I and then they just got away with it yeah I did hear a story one time one summer the uh, Minnesota Gopher baseball team was staying at the co-op 
Um, they some they were summer summer renters, and apparently the delts made them angry, so they took their baseball bats over there and basically destroyed the place. Holy buckets! Whoa. That was well before I moved in, but uh, yeah, that might be a story. You probably don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, we're, no, that's good. I'll ask other people. Maybe they can confirm or deny that. So yeah. now it was during the summer. Who knows who was there? <laughs> do you think that the co-op was informed at all by any other countercultural movements? Yeah. So the co-op was very much in my time informed. The culture there was informed by, um, as you mentioned, the hippie culture. Um, there was a sense of caring and loving and peace. And I'm not saying everybody had that, but there was definitely a group of people who that was very important to. So there was an altruism there. I mean, whether or not we were actually living it always fully, maybe not, but there was that ideal and there was a sense of community and importance of community. We very much valued we were at the end of where a lot of communes, a lot of us would like to have lived in a commune. And there was a few around um, in various parts of the, of the United States, but a lot of them were closing their doors. So mm -hmm. I think in some ways we were trying to recapture some of that commune movement that mm -hmm. we had missed out on. Yeah, definitely. That's amazing. That's great. I feel like now that indigenous mm -hmm. rights are, are are coming up and we're doing land acknowledgements and things, I, I feel as though we're entering a time where we can talk about things that we've been trying to get to, but for you know intergenerational trauma reasons, we haven't been able to really discuss more in depth. You, know, I was interested in uh, the dedication that you're making to the Dakota people yeah. with the podcast. I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit more about how that came to be. It well. My dad is involved in his church, the United Methodist, and he's worked on interreligious conciliations. And after he befriended some Dakota men, he decided that he could make some headway in his church and have them repudiate the doctrine of discovery, which was this papal bull from like the 1400s saying essentially Turtle Island is terra nullis and you can go and kill and genocide, whatever, you know, because it's not really, there's no one really there because they're the not Christian. Yeah. Cause they're not Christian. Wow. Um, wow. And that they're is even. actually the, the legal basis for a number of States across the continent, including Florida, Texas, and so on. And unfortunately other States also, base their legal stuff on well we cite the texas case or we cite the florida case so ultimately their basis for statehood is also based on the racist doctrine of discovery yeah so that's when i realized that a lot of the um, talking with them um, sheldon wolfchild who's a excellent documentarian who's done a lot of exposure of this along with stephen newcomb his creative partner and other indigenous people who I've gotten to know, you know, I've, I've, I've just started learning that we're not taught this stuff. I mean, I wasn't taught this in, in like social studies or anything about how uh, the land was stolen and, and how every single treaty was broken over the course of the few hundred years that, that this started going on. Unfortunately, as far back as Thomas Jefferson, who like endorsed the assimilation policies and then, you know, got so much worse with Andrew Jackson and, and on and on. And it just kept ramping up.
So then now um, that conciliation is happening a little bit where the United Methodist Church is trying to work with the Dakota and say, yeah, okay, we did, we, we stole your sacred being, this rock called Inyasha, we'll return it to you. Um, but the Dakota are being more gracious and um, willing to work with the church to receive their sacred being back. But the church is still feeling like they need to mark it with occasions and something, do something Christian about it instead of just giving it back. Um, And so this just keeps happening. And I just thought, well, I'd like to do a land acknowledgement because it's about just recognizing agreements that certain things took place instead of denying that they took place. And so I'm just inviting people to, yeah, to recognize that the Students Co-op is based on Dakota land. And actually, the University of Minnesota was based there thanks to Lincoln's Morrill Land Grab Act that basically expanded it. And that's when the U.S.-Dakota War started, when they tried to genocide the Dakota, starve them. Yeah. So anyway, it all, it all comes back down to the U of M in the Dakota land. And, and that's just what the Students Co-op is a part of in, in its history. And I, I always thought of it as something that was trying to do better. But I kept, just kept learning atrocity after atrocity and going, wow, like we, we're, we got somehow we got disconnected from this and we're, we're, we are deliberately disconnected from this truth. And if the co-op is going to survive, it has to it has to found itself or re-found itself on truth. Hmm. Yeah. Well, then I do want to add something. <laughs> thank you for that. Um, I want to thank you for for the interview and for the time for us to to travel through memory lane. Um, and I also want to thank you for for the project and for the dedication to the Dakota people because I think that awareness of that is really important. And thank you for doing that. Thank you. Thank you for that. Was there any attendance to protests, things like that? Well, yeah, I think I mentioned the South Africa stuff earlier, the apartheid. There was certainly protests there. There was... um, We used to love to protest Jed and Cindy. Oh, yeah. The um, Jed and Cindy came to the campus when you were there, but, you know, the... the, The evangelist. And... Oh, you know, the evangelists. They go to campuses. For years, and they went to campuses. Tell us we're all sinners and how we're going to hell. And they'd always come right before midterms and finals when people are at their weakest. Every year. And so that upset us, and we would sometimes protest that. Did the university give them a platform? They would stand like on the steps of Northrop or somewhere they in the mall. Be, they would be sponsored by like the Maranathas and or something. They would basically shout all this hate at people. And so we would people sort of would heckle, heckle back. Them. Yeah. Again, not sponsored by the co-op. This was individual. Like at no point did we say as a co-op, we're going there to do this, any of it. Another thing I'm remembering is the Nestle. There was a Nestle was a big thing right back then because yeah. they sold the formula to women in, in Africa. Africa and um, uh, knowing that they were cutting it with water and that the women would then get off the nursing and then would have more babies and all these babies would be mal- malnourished. So I remember that there was a lot of protests around that too. Thank you for sharing all that. And they made me fat. <laughs> <laughs> they did that. Bastards. But well, you know, they, have a, they have a product for that, yeah. though. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. While, boy, while boycotting them, they made me fat. That was a good trick. <laughs> the, the time period that we were in, Ted and I have often described as sort of the tail end of the baby boomers. So the communes weren't available. Um, you know, the, the big protests of the war, you know, those were gone. We were 
protesting different things. Maybe we hadn't quite found our, our legs yet. But one of the things that we have throughout our lives said to one another is, got to the co-op party just as <laughs> it was dawn, everybody was gone, and you had to be there to clean up. Yeah. <laughs> like you had to clean up whatever that person had done in the plant. The, <laughs> you had to clean up all the, the beer confetti. bottles. And the Beatles had already broken up. You know, yeah. if We were yearning for something that no longer was really existing, and we didn't see a lot coming ahead of us that would replace what that idealism was. So we were children when idealism was at a height, you know, in the 60s and 70s, where, you know, everything was going to be better when we were grown up. And it didn't end up that way. The, the co-op, I guess, for me anyway, gave a little bit of a, a glimpse of what that might have been. Wow, that's beautiful. Beside what I just got out of that, I also learned that the co-op apparently had plants. <laughs> and could actually take care of them? I have pictures of plants here in the co-op. We had some people who really liked plants. So, we so plants. in the common areas, there were plants around too? Yeah. The big rubber tree was, was the one I was thinking about when I was thinking about what that guy had done in it. But yeah. <laughs> At that time, I'm I'm told that the oak tree in the front was not there. No, there was nothing in the front yard at all. Just when grass. When we drove by not too long ago, within the last couple of years, I was surprised to see this enormous tree sort of blocking the front. The front yeah. was pretty bare. Nothing but grass and a chain fence yeah. when we were there. Yeah, yeah. yeah kind of like the near the, the corner frat, that like chain fence yeah. thing. Well, I remember one winter we built a... I don't, know if you can, I don't know if you can see this at all, but I got a couple of pictures of this. It's a giant nuclear weapon. Out of snow. Out of snow. <laughs> and it said, no nukes. Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. That's what the house looked like even. And there's no vines and there's the bike parking yeah, and there's yeah, the that's low that's like. wall. There were a bunch of aquariums at the house, right? And people were trading fish. Oh, um, yeah. Donald. Well, Donald was really into the aquariums. Yeah. Um, but, and he had a lot of bugs and spiders and stuff. But we also pretty regularly had a cat. A cat, a cat just in the house. roaming yeah. around in the halls? Yeah, yeah, just a cat. Yep. We usually had a house cat. We had Spleven for a while. We had Spot, Spot for a while. And then Boomson. Boomson. Yeah. I hope you don't speak German. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> probably couldn't do that now because of people's allergies. But we had like no cats, no dogs allowed. Although oh. now I've we seen didn't have it. any dogs, but we had cats. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty. Com- that was pretty common that we'd have a cat. Where was the litter box in the basement? I think the cat went outside. Honestly, yeah. I never emptied a litter box. I don't know where the cat went. <laughs> it went outside. There might have been one. I mean, it, now that you say that, there might have been one like in the laundry room. And yeah, but we had a lot of aquariums. People were into that. Donald kind of led the way on that, but other people were interested in that too. I had a scorpion. Oh, tons of of hamsters and gerbils. And I don't know if you guys did that. Snakes. Lots of snakes. A lot of pets. A lot of pets. I think I often lived there when there were no pets of any kind. We had a snail. I killed it. I had a gerbil. Most of the pets (laughs) belonged to people, but not the cats. They were friendly. They stayed. They just weren't allowed in the kitchen. Yeah. Well, they're they're co-opers too. Then, could you tell us a little bit about their names and what they were like? Um, Spot was insane. Spot was insane, and actually, when we moved out, they asked us to take him because we, we were the only ones that he could stand. 
Oh. He just he would attack people. I yeah, don't know. He, he must have had something wrong with his head. Yeah, he would be up on the lofts and you'd walk yeah. in, he'd swipe at your head. Yeah, he, he was would, insane. He was not oh, no. Leaving Yaya was a gray and white and probably the sweetest, just the sweetest cat. I remember him being there the longest. Yeah. And I don't remember where he came from, but he was there. And then Boomson was a, was the only female I remember. The black makes. Yeah. No tail. Yeah, and they yeah, they just walked around and they hung out with different people and you know, they knew people that they should stay away from because some people didn't like cats. <laughs> and they knew, you know, who they could go to and get an extra snack or something. Like I said, I don't really remember the litter box. Yeah. <laughs> it, but it sounds it like there wasn't a there wasn't a conflict of cats eating people's pets. No, 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 everybody's pets, like all the rodents and stuff, were in cages or yeah. terrariums or whatever. So the cats weren't going into people's rooms and swiping up fish? No, no. no. I want to leave a picture, believe, and he was a really beautiful cat. All right, so let's move on to the actual physical house. Rooms rearranged, anything like that? You know the beams in the living room, the mm-hmm. big dark beams? One day, Mark... Decided he was for his job, he was going to basically scrape them all and then spray them with acoustic ceilings. And he spent like the whole summer doing those. So I don't know if it still has the acoustic uh, popcorn ceilings in there. It does. It's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, he did. I mean, he, I thought he did a great job. I really do. That was, a, I mean, can you imagine each one of those? It's um, very well done. It's yeah. just unfortunate that. We couldn't remove it easily. What other things did we do? Uh, Remember you removed a wall in our room. <laughs> yeah, we did a lot of structural changes to our rooms with the lofts and such. I mean, I mean, he's pretty good at construction, but we probably should have had some permission. <laughs> he removed a wall and made our room bigger. Was that a combination of uh, two rooms then? No no, 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 no. Do you remember the room? Um, First floor. Okay, so the bathroom on the first floor, there's three rooms. There's two in the back and one off to the side. The room with the porch. The room with the porch had a walk-in closet. And he basically said, we don't need this big walk-in closet because that room's pretty small. And so he said, I'm just going to tear this wall down and make a new closet that's a lot smaller. And it was a lot. It made our room a lot bigger. We lived in that room for a while. Okay. How many rooms (laughs) are there now? There was like... 32 spaces, some yeah. were double room, double occupancy. Most of them were double, yeah. We had availability for 29. I don't know when it was decided that 29 was the number, but maybe a double was converted to a single is my guess. Yeah. Well, do, do, did you guys call? There was a room on the second floor that we used to call the coffin. <laughs> you know, it was right. It was the first one you'd get to on the second floor. Um, well, that was a double room, which is ridiculous. It was teeny. I don't think it even had a window. I had, it doesn't have a window above a radiator. I think that has been a double. I can't remember. Room 11, I want to call it. Oh, I don't think our rooms had numbers. No. They have numbers? Whoa. What? How did you refer to the rooms? They had names. They had names. <laughs> yeah. Wow. What, what were the names? Okay, the blue room, the coffin. The nest. Upstairs. Which, yeah. which was the nest? Third floor the third, at the end. At the very end, looking With out the three big windows. Static. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's the nest. Okay, okay, great. So we have rooms one through eighteen. That's that's how it goes here. Okay. Is there still a bedroom behind the boiler? Behind the boiler. Yeah. Yeah. There used to be a bedroom back there. In yeah. the boiler room. Well, it was behind the boiler room. There, there was, was a another, wall. There's and like a, a closet. In the tool room. That was the room. 
Yeah, the tool room. Exactly. Yeah. That's it. That was a bedroom. No. That would be unsafe. <laughs> that was unsafe. Sawdust and who knows what else. Yeah, we had a friend who lived there for a while. Um, without yeah. the benches and stuff, yeah. It had because no benches. Like, no. Yeah, you know, like Ted said, yeah, it just hung the tools. Uh, also acted as a, somebody's room. Yeah, so someone just used it as a room. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, it was Jim, and I don't think he was a student at the time. So he said, well, I'll tell you what, I won't take up one of the other rooms. I'll take up this room that nobody's using. Yeah, he really shouldn't have been in there, though. <laughs> <laughs> but but he paid rent. He paid dues. So he did. He did. it's yeah, all he did. good. Jim was a really good cook, and he made a lot of meals for us. Oh. How uh, did, did people run bicycles in and out of the co-op at that time yes yeah did you have a lot of public bike parking in the common areas um the whole front hallway which i'm pretty sure was probably a fire hazard but the whole front hallway as you enter (laughs) was filled with bikes Mm -hmm. we didn't we they weren't allowed to be like in the living room or the The common area the common i mean but so people put them there or they locked them up on the front porch but you know that was not as safe some people put them on the back porch, but I mean, there wasn't much room there, but you could put one or two back there. I found out so much of the stuff that I'm used to happened in the 90s. Um, the red linoleum floor in the kitchen was replaced with white tile floor. Yeah, that was later. I, I remember the red linoleum, yeah. yeah. The application process was proposed and tested. And so then instead of recruitment manager's job or house manager, it was actually like the job of the whole house to like invite people in and out. Oh. Yeah, that's and that, we didn't have that. That's awesome. That's how it should be. You really, you think so? So I, yeah, I'm curious about that. So when it was the house manager doing recruitment, they literally had to find who was going to live in the house constantly. Well, we advertise. Yeah, and, and you can find us through like university housing too. So yeah, we were yeah. listed and we advertised, and and there was a lot of remember there's like fifty eight thousand students started. Okay. I mean, there was a lot of students looking for housing. And we were pretty conveniently and, located. And I would say the managers in the time that I was there you know, did a good job for the most part. But um, as, as Ted mentioned earlier, our middle son went through a co-op and they had an application process and interviews. And as he went through that process, I thought, wow, I kind of wish we had done that because that would have made sure that people really understood what they were getting into as well as um, the people <laughs> right. who were at the co-op. Well, yeah. really, and yeah. recognizing yes. what you know, who, who's coming in. And, and I mean, you don't want it to be discriminatory, which of course it could potentially get to, but then so could an individual making that decision. Yeah. I mean, the housing laws themselves are discriminatory. So it's, it's discrimination is not necessarily a negative in this case, right? Discrimination Mm -hmm. is just to have informed choice. So it's, it's very tricky, very tricky subject. Yeah. Other things that happened in the nineties, I learned that the murals started, there were no murals. Is that true? No. no, we had murals. You had murals. No, we didn't have. We had. Uh, on we the had walls? a Ziggy cartoon. You mean, I have a picture of it. So there, there have been illustrations coming and going from the walls. Yeah, I remember a Ziggy cartoon. That's yeah, there were a lot of murals on the walls and cartoons and stuff that just got painted over. Really? Okay. Where is the mural? Is it a particular place? Uh, well, they're all over the house now. I know what you're talking about because our son's co-op looked like that. Our co-op did not look like that. It had illustrations here and there. So people would do, maybe would do something, but it was not this like everywhere. It was not like a free-for-all anybody can paint anywhere. Draw anywhere. Yeah. 
you didn't have bathtubs. It was just showers. Just yeah, showers, yes. Yeah. I think you. I think you had the the original showers. Yeah, the bathtubs. It was a. It happened in the nineties. Apparently, it was a bad idea. Yeah, so we didn't have cell phones, so we had phone rooms on all three floors. That was really an ongoing headache because people would make long distance calls and they wouldn't write them down. (laughs) (laughs) So you'd have to write down the call in order to be responsible for the charge. Yeah. Wow. So what happened eventually is when I moved in, there were two phones in 2011. There was one on the first floor out near the other porch entrance. And there was one on the second floor near what is called the manager's closet, which I assume was some sort of phone room. But the phone is outside the closet in the hallway. However, by the time I moved out in 2015, the phones were reduced to just one on the second floor connected over VoIP instead of on telephony. So when the internet gave out, we didn't have that phone line. And eventually it was replaced with uh, some portable phone that floats in the house. Oh, Oh, interesting. Back in 1979, (laughs) we had a telecom system. I believe there was three, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's only two phone lines and people would receive and, and make phone calls from them. If you lived near, that was one of the problems of living in the coffin is that you're right next to the phone. So it seemed like you had to answer the phone the most. And we didn't want to then have that person not only have to answer the phone, but then have to go around the house looking for you. So you would just press the intercom and say, you know, so-and-so, you have a phone call. Wow. Paging uh, Carolinda, you have a phone call. (laughs) Exactly. So we would do that. Uh, And that's what it was for. But sometimes people would misuse the system (laughs) for other things. I imagine Um, parties would be interesting with the telecom system. Yes. (laughs) And, and then there was that gray area, like, let's say I just got off work and I'm looking for Ted and I would be looking all over the house and I couldn't find him. Then maybe I'd go in the intercom and say, hey, Ted, where are you? <laughs> <laughs> we used to have a running joke because I'd come home from work or school or whatever and I'd look for him and I'd always be looking everywhere. And then I'd find him. I'm like, there you are. And he'd be like, I know where I am. <laughs> I <must have> <laughs> the intercom system was really important, as was the telephone. You, you never knew what room somebody was in. I used to just ask people, have you seen so-and-so? Oh, no. Well, then that was it. You may have to go knocking on doors. Yeah. Oh, no, you could you could use the internet. All right. I suppose now people will do um, Facebook message or text message. Well, they'll just text, right? People yeah. have their phones on them. So they'll yeah. just text. Where, are, say, you? Where are you? <laughs> <laughs> the, you know, the funniest story about that phone on the second floor was Kathy's boyfriend. Her boyfriend was Conrad Hilton III, and he would come over drunk. And he'd be up on that intercom on the second floor mumbling something into it but you couldn't really figure out what he was saying because he was so wasted so you're down in the kitchen and you can hear this mumbling going on yeah yeah yeah. so that that was the kind of thing it was not supposed to be used for yeah you you weren't supposed to be on the intercom if you were intoxicated (laughs) and and didn't live there (laughs) oh my gosh so how how did it go with people uh, staying over. Did you have a guest system where it was sort of, I take responsibility for this person. If they break anything, you know, it's my responsibility. Or was it just sort of dealt with? There was no guest system. No. It was a different time, right? Security was, and we had that combination lock 
on the mm. front and back to mm-hmm. get into the house. We didn't, um, but once you were in the house, once you brought somebody in the house, I mean, I guess there was just an unwritten rule that you're basically responsible for that person. But we didn't like sign in guests. We didn't, mm. it, when a guest created some damage, which sometimes happened at a party or something, we didn't say, oh, whose guest was that? I mean, we just yeah. dealt with it as a group. Awesome. I mean, I suppose if somebody kept bringing somebody over who was causing a lot of damage, yeah. we would have had a talk with that person. And there were a lot of friends of the co-op. That, there was that, a lot, yeah. Yeah, I mean, these people didn't necessarily live there, but they could sleep on the couch if they drank too much or something. Nobody cared. I, I don't think any of them were particularly destructive anyway. In fact, we, we had someone who was an ex-convict living there that was a friend of one of our members, and he was fine. We had very few, but not zero, thefts. The thefts tended to happen more in the summer mm-hmm. where more people were in and out. Also, we were listed as, I don't know if it still is or not, but the co-op was listed then as a youth hostel. So we had international visitors. That system completely disappeared. Summer, it was like just a totally different place. First yeah. of all, nobody had to be a student. Mm-hmm. because Nobody had to study. We had people from all over the world. We had people yeah. from... China, from Greece, from the UK, UK, from Switzerland, from Germany, Latin America, yeah, parts of Latin America, Australia. I mean, we had people, it was fun. I mean, but it also was a situation where you would see, and I'm not saying those people stole things, but you would just see more people in and out of the house. What kind of diversity would you say was there from 79 to 85? Yeah, Um, very little racial diversity. I would say we had a fair amount of LGBT, LGBT, maybe not T, because T wasn't a real big thing back then. Maybe it probably was T, but we didn't didn't know it. (laughs) Right. That's great. So it attracted a sort of like queer community. It definitely did. Yes. Um, Yes. How about religious and and, um, political or or like pro-military, pro Oh, yeah. We had a couple of Razi people. We had some Christians. We had people who really should have been in fraternities, people who really should have been in sororities. Coming from Anoka, I was like one of 3,200 people in my high school. There was maybe one person of color, an exchange student from Indonesia or something. The only person of color I ever saw in my high school career. You know, and so going to the University of Minnesota, it was just, it was amazing. I think that was one of the, the aspects that really drew me to the co-op, besides Carolinda. I, yeah, I want to say, too, just going back. So we had somebody who was in the Air Force, somebody who was in the Army, Army somebody who was in the Navies. Um, what Probably was, a Marine. What, what was Mitch? I think Mitch was a Marine. <laughs> <laughs> Mitch's motto was, get drunk and wreck shit. I had come from a very liberal background and coming out of the 70s with the with the Vietnam War. It was very interesting to me and I think important for me to meet people who were actually responsible people in the military because I had a a pretty negative view of the military. And so, I mean, to me, that was one of the really interesting, like, I think in general, most of the people were there were pretty liberal, mm-hmm. but then you had these people who were there who had more conservative views and it was interesting to learn from them. Mm-hmm. So would you say that there were any debates in the kitchen or arguments or things like that in the big social areas? Definitely. I'm going to, I'm going to, how about knock down drag out fights? <laughs> Before you get to the fight, I want to say something. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of, of young people there, so fights happen. But again, pre-social media, pre-internet, 
we had a booklet, uh, just a little like notebook in the kitchen where people would write down thoughts and ideas and then other people would come and respond to them. And there was sometimes some very heated debates that were going on on mm -hmm. paper. And then certainly also happened in some of the social spaces, the TV mm -hmm. room and the living room. Yeah, and you weren't allowed to fight. If you were, oh, yeah, I weren't allowed if, you, to fight. if you got caught fighting or were brought before the board for fighting, you would likely be kicked out. Wow, okay. Well, you'd probably get a warning the first time. If it was an ongoing thing, then yeah, you would get evicted for that. Yeah. Were the, most of the fights between tensions with the residents or was it also with visitors? Not visitors. I mean, that would have been a case where we would have told the visitor to leave if the visitor was getting to a place where he or she was, where they were not uh, being respectful. We would have told them to leave. And I think we did on occasion. But no, we had some very different opinions about things. Again, mm -hmm. I think the religious and the and the political diversity led to some some very strong feelings that people expressed to one another and, and an occasion I'd say that happened more with the men than the women. I don't remember a lot of fights with the women, but maybe some yelling, but definitely fist fights with the men and and they had to be broken up by other people. Because of the university setting, I am assuming, but correct me if I'm wrong, that it was a very permissive environment for alcohol and substances. I think people were just responsible for themselves and their own behavior. You know, if you got out of hand, then you got out of hand and it was, it's on you, you know? No, it was permissive. I know there weren't any written rules, but I would say there was certainly a respect for um, certain hours, especially during the school year. Something I felt very strongly for while I was there and since, and, and even into my son's experiences, the, the, the worst aspects of the co-ops I've ever seen were the ones where they let people in who were not students just because they wanted to fill rooms. They just don't have the same investment that the people that are students are. They're just they're just there for whatever reason. Not, not that the co-op didn't have friends, you know, that would come in and help stuff. That, that's fine. But like where my son lived, they had these people they called travelers that would come for a certain amount of time. And they, they, they wanted to get some uh, repairs done on the house, for example. And they'd say, well, you can live here if you do repairs. And they would do a minor repair here and there. But generally, they just became problems. You'd give them $20 to go buy stuff at the hardware store. And they'd come back and say, oh, well, I lost the $20. I need 20 more. And they were just pretty much yeah. buying drugs. And like I said, we, we gave people leeway if they were having trouble with financial aid or something. We gave them a lot of leeway. But it, I think it is really important that you keep the students in the student yeah. co-op. Yeah. That is the focus of the house is for students. You know, I think that that's my opinion. Sense. Like mm -hmm. as someone who joined the co-op right after they got rid of the rule that you have to be a student and I joined as a non-student, I mm -hmm. feel that it would have been, it would have lost some cohesiveness if it had been all people like me. It, it needed a certain connection to the university to sort of keep, I don't know, some sort of momentum going. Now we benefited a lot from people who were not students and who just had beautiful memories of the place and wanted to keep it going. And, and indeed the alumni mm -hmm. are now helping a lot with keeping it going. However, yes, I can see your point. Cheap rent is a good starting place to attract people, mm -hmm. but there's so many young folks from 17 to 30, and they, they, they almost need a kind of a touchstone 
to the outside world mm-hmm. that that prevents it from devolving into a, a failed commune or um, anything like that. Well, the thing is, you're, as one generation of cooperatives there, you hand the mantle off to the next people. You need to be able to say, okay, I've had my time here. I'm going to move on. Here, the reins are yours. I think when you're not a student and you see all these people moving on year after year after year, you kind of think, well, isn't this really mine? It, 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 isn't, it isn't really yours. It's the next people who are moving in. You have to see that future before you can really respect what people are going through. You know, you have to know I'm doing this for the future generation. And I don't know if people would actually see that unless they had the same connections. And, and we were all students, you know, we all went through the same things and we had that connection. And, and I distinctly remember people who weren't students, they were almost like outsiders. I mean, they were just mm. sort of thought of as outsiders, mm. even though some of them were really good friends and did good things for the house. They always had a different status in the house. I think some generations will benefit from your advice. Is there any other advice you would give to people who want to continue this egalitarian cooperative thing? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back um, to what I said earlier about the responsibility that you have for yourself, that you have for the other co-opers within the environment, and that you have just generally to the idea of a cooperative living. That, that you're dedicated to that and that means something to you and you take it seriously. Mm-hmm. One of the things we haven't talked about yet, and you probably heard this from other people, is, is the work days. Mm-hmm. Um, the work days were hard and you probably had them too. And they were all weekend. And they were more than just one day. They were, they were multiple days, but they bonded. They made us mm-hmm. care about our home, care about each other. It's great that people have greater understanding about a lot of the things we discussed earlier in terms of mental health issues and you know privilege and all of that. That's really important, but hopefully not lost with that is the sense of, of pride and responsibility that we have towards ourselves and towards one another. Mm-hmm. Well said. Well said. So group equity is kind of what you're talking about. It's that you are you get into this mentality that you can also give. It's not just about yourself. It's about mm-hmm. giving to the group a little bit and the greater good. Paying it forward. I, I have to say that the co-op was really only as good as the members that were there at the time. And it vacillated quite a bit. Sometimes there would be just a great group of people there and it was just amazing. You'd sort of feed off of each other's energy. And other times it just seemed like there was a lot of dissension and division. And so I really can't say that, you know, we were always altruistic. We were always looking out for the kind of the greater lifestyle that we were really looking for. Uh, Sometimes it was just, God, how do you describe this? It, It was like you throw a bunch of things in the middle of a table and what you happen to pull out is what you get. You know, there, there are members I remember fondly and people I really want to forget. You know, uh, just really did the house have clicks? The D and D people were kind of a click. Um, a lot of them were in band like the university of Minnesota band or something. There was uh, a poker group, the poker group. Uh, but it didn't mean anybody couldn't join those things. You were always welcome. It just it was a matter of having the interest or not. But I wouldn't I wouldn't say it was particularly clicky. 
I don't think it was so clicky, but I would say that there were some people who probably felt a little bit like outcasts. There was probably some people who felt like they couldn't find their niche. So yeah. it wasn't that people didn't want them in their niche. It was more maybe they just didn't quite fit mm-hmm. the composition of the people that were in. Because I remember some people being kind of lonely, couldn't find their place. Um, but there was a lot of different places you could be in or you could make a place, you know, for yeah. people. Wow. Did you see people who were struggling to fit in uh, leave the house having been bettered in some way? I'm not going to say the name, but we were looking on a Facebook of the co-op recently, and I was so surprised to see a post by somebody who, in my recollection, did not fit in. Someone who was writing about fond memories of the co-op and mentioning a lot of things that I know I was involved in, Ted was involved in. And in that sense, yeah, I mean, he must have felt like he at some level did fit in, even though mm. I think the whole time we were there, we were just like, you know, this guy kind of a loner. He seems like a loner. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes people are like that. They kind of hang back and don't say a lot, but they're taking in a lot more than, you know. Yeah, definitely. There you have it, folks. I'd say it sounds like there's a twinkle of hope here for cooperation. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you'll join me next time when we enjoy the company of another wonderful friendship that that blossomed in the house. I'm sorry. (laughs) My hosting is very corny. I'm sorry. You can go to podcast.studentscoop.org for show notes and photos. Thank you.